Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The constitutionality of the Indian Child Welfare Act is once again on trial. The U.S. Supreme Court just heard oral arguments in the Brackeen v. Holland case. ICWA's supporters say it's the most significant challenge to the 40-year-old law in memory, given the current makeup of the court. Coming up, we'll look at what each side is saying and what the high court's decision could mean either way. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments Wednesday from parties appealing a Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals opinion that parts of the Indian Child Welfare Act are unconstitutional. Four attorneys argued for tribes and the federal government on one side and for states and non-Indian foster parents on the other. In advance of Wednesday's arguments, hundreds of organizations, tribes, parents, and other interested parties weighed in by filing friend-of-the-court briefs. Victoria Wicks has more. The long list of parties submitting friend-of-the-court, or amicus curiae, briefs on this case includes 497 tribes and 62 tribal and Indian organizations. They say ICWA protects Native children's well-being and preserves tribal nations. Another brief comes from Robin Bradshaw, a registered member of the White Earth Band of the Ojibwe tribe. She outlined her protracted legal battle in Minnesota to hang on to custody of her granddaughter. Another brief was written by a group of administrative and constitutional law professors represented by Dallas attorney David Cole. Cole said in an interview that there is sincere and compelling emotion on both sides, but the issue comes down to the law. Does the U.S. Constitution empower Congress to pass laws such as ICWA to further the United States' obligation to enforce treaties? There have been treaties made with Indian nations requiring uh, certain commitments towards taking care of children, the welfare of families. And pursuant to those treaties, Congress has enacted ICWA as something necessary and proper to carrying out the goals of those treaties. The other side sees it differently. The state of Texas and seven individuals argue that ICWA is unconstitutional because it discriminates against non-Indian adoptive or foster parents and allows Congress to commandeer the functions of state courts and agencies to carry out ICWA's practices. Supreme Court justices will settle the issue in a future opinion. For National Native News, I'm Victoria Wicks in Rapid City, South Dakota. Tribal leaders across the country are among those defending the Indian Child Welfare Act. Leaders of the Cherokee Nation, Morongo Band of Mission Indians, Oneida Nation, and Quinault Nation were among those to attend arguments at the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. Wednesday. Leaders say the law keeps Native children with Native families. They're calling for the protection of ICWA to to make sure children are not taken away from tribal communities. Cherokee Nation Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. in a statement called ICWA a gold standard. He says the law has kept Indian nations whole and Indian children in tribal homes so they can retain their culture and identity. A number of Native organizations, legal experts, and child welfare advocates are also supporting the law. 
Redistricting in North Dakota had mixed results for Native candidates in this week's election. Newly redrawn boundaries contributed to the ousting of two Native incumbents. Democrat Richard Marcellet lost his seat in the state Senate after seven terms. He's the former chairman of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa. The tribe has a pending legal challenge against the new district boundaries that split the reservation's voting power and combined it with non-tribal votes. Democrat Ruth Buffalo also lost her seat. She's a citizen of the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara Nation and was the first Native American woman elected to the North Dakota legislature. A change to her district diluted the urban base in Fargo that initially put her in office. But a newly created district ushered in the election of Mandan Hidatsa Arikara Nation citizen Lisa Finley DeVille. She was elected in the district that now includes the Fort Berthold Reservation. Democrats will hold just 15 of North Dakota's 141 legislative seats. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Make sure your holiday checklist includes avoiding the latest holiday scams. Scammers count on you being too busy and distracted to pay attention, so visit aarp.org slash holiday scams to get up-to-date tips on the latest scams. AARP supports this show. November is National Epilepsy Awareness Month. Did you know one in 26 people will develop epilepsy during their lifetime? Call 1-800-332-1000 to learn more. The Epilepsy Foundation supports this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Is the law established nearly 45 years ago that sets parameters for adopting Native children outside of their tribe constitutional? That's the crux of oral arguments in front of the United States Supreme Court this week and the basis for dozens of lawsuits before now challenging the Indian Child Welfare Act. Another related question is whether ICWA, as it's known, relies on criteria based on race or whether the deciding factor is more a question of a child's citizenship within a sovereign entity. The case heard this week is Holland v. Brackeen, and many legal experts and advocates say the case and the current circumstances make this one of the most serious challenges to ICWA in the law's history. And the decision could have far-reaching implications for tribal sovereignty as we know it. Sometimes the oral arguments can give insights into what the high court's justices are thinking. We'll take a look at that and consider what the future of ICWA looks like. You can join our conversation, too, by calling in 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Speaking with us first today from Ann Arbor, Michigan, is Matthew Fletcher. He's a law professor at the University of Michigan Law School and author of the Turtle Talk blog. He's a member of the Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians. Matthew, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. It's good to be here. Matthew, oral arguments for Brackeen vs. Holland lasted more than three hours yesterday. You were there inside, present. Did you hang in there for the whole argument? I did. It was over three hours long, and uh, there should be some sort of law about arguments going that long. (laughs) 
yeah, I listened to, to a good part of their recording, and it was definitely uh, definitely a, a marathon there, not a sprint. And well, well, Matthew, can we draw anything from from the arguments yesterday uh, that provide any significant guidance in terms of what the justices are thinking? Well, it's always fraught to look at what's going on in oral argument to try to get a sense of you know where people are going to vote. You know, there's a lot more work to be done behind the scenes. You know, they're probably this week are going to vote on a preliminary, uh, you know, offer a preliminary vote internally and assign an opinion uh, to somebody in the majority. Uh, so who knows? But, uh, you know, you can always glean uh, the way oral, oral argument works at the Supreme Court is it's, it's kind of like the oral argument is between the justices themselves. Um, you know, the parties are obviously there arguing the case and trying to make arguments, but uh, questions tend from the justices themselves tend to be tinged with um, their own version of, of what the law should be, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I would say this, um, you know, worst case scenario, as you said in the intro, you know, everything is on the table. Uh, you have a justice like Alito saying, well, I honestly don't know how to analyze this case after questioning whether Congress has powers under Article One. Article One of the Constitution says Congress can, can deal with Indian affairs effectively. And, uh, you know, he's looking, it appears he's looking for a way to limit that, um, which is weird because in the history of the United States, no act of Congress has ever been struck down because it was in you know, beyond the power of Congress in its Indian affairs powers. So it's weird that he thinks that he doesn't know how to analyze this. And when when you have a justice say that, then really everything is on the table. But I will say this, the the justices seem to be focused on very specific portions of the Indian Child Welfare Act, on very uh, sort of narrow constitutional questions. And if they stick to those issues, um, that might be a, a, a best-case scenario for us, uh, for tribal interests. We don't have the votes on the Supreme Court right now. Um, some part of ICWA is most likely going to be struck down. But fingers crossed, knock on wood, uh, whatever superstition you can think of in your tribal community, um, they're not going to strike the whole thing down. Okay. And to review for our listeners, uh, again, how did we get here to this point that uh, Brackeen versus Holland uh, having arguments here at the Supreme Court? And, and who specifically are arguing the two sides of this case? Well, um, so we got here because in 2013, the Supreme Court decided a case called Adoptive Couple versus Baby Girl. Um, they ruled against the tribe that the, the, the Cherokee birth father in that case. It was awful, awful, tragic case, um, mean-spirited, nasty. And the majority opinion, and I'll have to bring up Justice Alito again, who wrote it, basically was saying, next time bring me a case challenging the constitutionality of ICWA so I can throw this whole thing out. Um, and that galvanized uh, the attention of some pretty awful people um, that are and, and organizations that are really interested in gutting civil rights law, uh, gutting the powers of Congress in Indian Affairs, and so uh, they went looking for plaintiffs, and they found uh, pairs of plaintiffs around the country, uh, foster families, adoptive families who tend to, who are non-Indian mostly, and then um, tried to you know create a vehicle for a Supreme Court review, and they were successful. We have three foster families before the court right now. They're represented by an attorney named Matthew McGill, um, who was part of the adoptive couple case back in 2013. Um, the state of Texas sort of just jumps in on all of this and when it filed the, the initial complaint in this case. 
um, why Texas decided that uh, after 40 years the Indian Child Welfare Act was unconstitutional is just pure Texas politics. Um, and so they're represented by um, a guy named Judd Stone, uh, who is their solicitor general. The United States, uh, as always, is the defendant when somebody challenges the constitutionality of the federal, st federal statute. Mm -hmm. uh, they're represented by an attorney named Ed Needler, who's argued more Indian law cases than anybody else in the history of the Supreme Court. And uh, the tribes who intervene in this case are represented by Ian Gershengorn, who is a former solicitor general of the United States and a veteran Indian law litigator. Well, let's get a sample of the three-hour arguments from yesterday. Here's a question by Justice Brett Kavanaugh in which he's talking about what's known as the Equal Protection Clause. We have to find the line between two fundamental and, fundamental and critical constitutional values. So on the one hand, the great respect for tribal self-government, uh, for the success of Indian tribes with uh, and Indian peoples with recognition of the history of oppression and discrimination against tribes and peoples. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, the fundamental principle we don't treat uh, people differently on account of their race or ethnicity or ancestry, uh, equal justice under law. Uh, I don't think we would ever allow, um, as the court suggested in Palmore in 1984, Congress to say that white parents should get a preference for white children in adoption or that Latino parents should get a preference for Latino children in adoption proceedings. I don't think that would be permitted. So this gets to the heart of, of one of these questions. And, and Matthew, uh, he has a point, doesn't he, that there is no law protecting the children of, of any other population. Why should there be one for Native children? Well, uh, I got to point to another part of the argument where Justice Gorsuch sort of, I think, casually mentioned that there's only one ethnicity mentioned in the Constitution, and it's Indian tribes and Indian people. Um, there is a special relationship between the United States and Indian tribes. All the land that we're on came from tribal nations. Uh, the United States has, under, has agreed to take a duty of protection, i.e. the trust responsibility to Indian people and Indian tribes. That's why Congress can pass a law uh, specific to Native people. Um, Justice uh, uh, Kavanaugh, with all due respect, is asking the wrong question. Uh, Justice Gorsuch had already answered that question earlier in argument. He didn't seem to be listening. And the, the answer is Congress can pass a law like this because the Constitution explicitly mentions Indians and Indian tribes. Somebody, no, notably Congress, has to define for us who an Indian and who a tribe is, and they've been doing that since 1790. Uh, none of this is new. Uh, it's it's surprising again the way just like the way Justice Alito asked the question. Wow, does Congress really have much power in Indian affairs? The answer to the Justice uh, Black uh, Kavanaugh's question is actually very easy. When Congress passes a law that is intended to be uh, the uh, to fulfill the uh, trust responsibility as it tried to do in ICWA, then that law is flatly constitutional. It's totally fine to do that. So again, these are frustrating questions coming from skeptics on the other side that are totally missing the point, and I think missing the point intentionally. So what's next now uh, on the timeline for Brackeen versus Holland now that these arguments have been presented to the Supreme Court? Well, they, a case like this argued in November usually takes four to six months to be, to, for an opinion to be issued. But I would fully expect this potentially to last the whole rest of the term. The court typically finishes up its term at the end of June when all the big blockbuster cases come out. 
Um, and that's, you know, where McGirt versus Oklahoma came out. Some of the other big Indian law cases have come out on the next or the day or the next last day of the term. So I'm looking at June. It's going to be a lengthy, lots of opinions. There, there was an oral argument went three hours because everybody has a lot to say. So I fully expect to be doing a lot of reading when the court's done. And Matthew, what legal precedents or provisions that, that we haven't mentioned yet are going to determine this case ultimately? You know, there's one that's so obscure and crazy. Uh, it's come, it comes from the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution, and the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution says that any powers not reserved uh, or delegated to the federal government are reserved to the states. And for most of the history of the United States, the Tenth Amendment didn't have any meaning. It's just a, an expression of what is already understood by the Constitution. So, the, as I mentioned, Congress has the power to regulate Indian affairs in a whole bunch of different ways. There's the Indian Commerce Clause, the Treaty Power, uh, the Supremacy Clause, where Congress can pass a law on Indian affairs and preempt the field, and they can keep, kick states out of Indian country. All of that happened within the first year of the uh, ratification of the Constitution. So um, so what what's weird about the Tenth Amendment is that in 1992, the Supreme Court said there is some meaning to the Tenth Amendment. It, the meaning is that Congress cannot commandeer states. And what does that mean? That's not in the text of the Constitution. No, but James Madison and everybody else in the fra framing, framing generation never mentioned anything about being, you know, commandeering states. So what does that mean? It just means that Congress can't tell states what to do. Congress can bribe states effectively. They can dangle a carrot of money in front of states and say, we want you to do these things, so please do them. And states have an option to take the money and do the thing or decline the money. That's federal highway money, effectively. Um, the other thing that Congress can do is uh, even – and avoid commandeering – is to create federal rights. Uh, so okay. they can say something like, you know. Matthew, okay. we're going to have to take a break, but it, when we come back, I'd like to hear more about this option of federal rights. So, folks, if you got a question about these ICWA proceedings yesterday, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Whether you're looking for gifts for your children or grandchildren, or your little bookworm is always hungry for new stories, there's no shortage of Native children's books on bookshelves today. On the next episode of Native America Calling, we'll talk about the latest in Native children's literature. Do you have a holiday checklist? Make sure it includes avoiding the latest holiday scams. Scammers count on you being too busy and distracted to pay attention. But research shows if you know about a scam, you're 80% less likely to engage in it. Visit aarp.org slash holiday scams to get up-to-date tips on charity scams, online shopping scams, package scams, and more. That's aarp.org slash holiday scams. AARP supports this show. You're listening to Native America Calling, a one-hour live radio show on indigenous issues and topics. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Today, we're focusing on the Indian Child Welfare Act. Justices of the Supreme Court heard oral arguments yesterday on the constitutionality of the law designed to keep Native children with Native families. Are you concerned about the future of ICWA? Do you have questions about the case, Brackeen v. Holland? Did the Indian Child Welfare Act play a role in how you were raised? Please give us a call. 
1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're speaking now with law professor Matthew Fletcher. Matthew, before we went to break, you were talking about uh, possibly some legal precedents or provisions that could determine Brackeen versus Holland. Please finish your thoughts. Yeah, sorry about it. This is a complicated issue, but the principle of anti-commandeering is that Congress can't tell states what to do. They can't command the states. And so Texas is arguing that the Indian Child Welfare Act, when it requires states to do things like provide active efforts before terminating the rights of an, an Indian family or an Indian parent, um, that, it, that, that Congress has commanded Texas to do that work. Um, so uh, that's a tricky question, and I think that there's going to be some time spent on that in the opinion, and it's very likely that some portions of the Indian Child Welfare Act will be struck down as a, a matter of, uh, as because it, according to the court, commands the states. But as the newest justice on the Supreme Court pointed out, uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, that there is no such thing as an anti-commandeering principle. It's completely a creature created by the Supreme Court in 1992. And so um, I don't think she's going to vote for the anti-commandeering principle. And Congress has been commandeering the states on Indian affairs since the very first um, Congress. I mean, they've been ordering states how to deal with Indian affairs uh, and how to deal with Indian tribes since 1790. So... Um, it seems odd that they go down that road, but um, they seem pretty committed to looking at aspects of ICWA, not the whole thing, but bits and pieces, active efforts perhaps. Um, the fact that Texas doesn't want to keep records about its child welfare proceedings is another one that I find laughable if it weren't so serious. Um, mm -hmm. So that's that's sort of the big issue. Again, nothing in the history of the United States, uh, no statute has been struck down because of commandeering uh, by, uh, by Congress in Indian Affairs. So this would be a first. Okay. Well, Matthew, thank you for, for setting the tone for our conversation today and, and all those insights. And again, you were there present inside during uh, the oral arguments that were heard yesterday at the Supreme Court. Folks, we've got our first caller on the line now, Norman, listening on KGLP in Gallup, New Mexico. Norman, hello. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. It's a, a great uh, subject. Uh, once again, they're targeting our children. Once again, they're uh, alienating our, our rights to this land and to our future. And my, my, my main concern is why do we allow as Indian people to continue to fight the, the war in the court? You know, I mean, look at the 70s. I'm from that generation. And everything that we fought for solidified itself in various laws that are, are that are being threatened now by precedent in terms of, you know, our lands and, you know, our rights to the land. And so my, my, my main concern is what are we going to do if this is overturned and it opens other doors? What is okay. any country going to do? Okay. Know? Norman, thank you for, and, and, yeah, that's the question. That is the question today. What will we do if ICWA is dissolved? And, and let's bring in our next guest to help us answer that question. Joining us now is Suzette Brewer. She's an independent journalist and a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Suzette, always a pleasure to have you on the show as well. Welcome back. Oh, Don, thank you so much. I really do appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I, I, I have lots to share. So I just want to say that uh, Matthew is spot on in his analysis. I was actually traveling for work yesterday, and so I went through all the transcripts last night. Uh, it was a long transcript. Um, I, I would just say this. Um, with all due respect to, to Mr. Fletcher, I'm not sure that they're looking at just bits and pieces. I, I think we're looking at a full-on overturn. 
Um, okay. Based on the essentially based on the the how we got here, starting with Veronica ten almost ten years ago, they've been forum forum shopping and uh, shopping for basically customers, if you will, or foster parents for the last ten years and and looking at different. I've covered uh, subsequent cases after Veronica in six different jurisdictions. Um, and they were all overturned for lack of merit, lack of standing, all those things. And so they finally landed with the Judge Reed O'Connor in the Northern District of Texas. And uh, he unilaterally overturned ICWA, sending it automatically into the Fifth Circuit. Well, the problem with that is, and I just want to point this out, there's a couple of things in Texas that I want to add to Matthew's uh, remarks earlier. And the problem with that is, in the Fifth Circuit, Originally, that three-judge panel in New Orleans ruled in favor of the tribe. But then subsequently, I believe it was in uh, 2020, uh, they had a subsequent hearing. There was an en banc hearing that nobody asked for. That's important because no, no party was asking for an appeal in the Fifth Circuit. So essentially, those 17 judges got together and voted and decided to hold an en banc hearing sua sponte, uh, with none of the parties asking for that. And so I knew when that happened that we were in trouble. We're in trouble. Okay. There's just no other way to put it. And okay. then uh, and then subsequently, too, I, I want to say there's another piece to this in terms of the commandeering thing that no one has really addressed at this point, and that is in most of the states, or if not all the states where ICWA, where ICWA is, be, is being adjudicated, those states have all passed almost identical codes in their own statutes. So so I'm not sure what Texas is arguing because that entire ICWA code is also embedded in Texas's state statutes, as it is in South Dakota, Oklahoma, California, Alaska, all these states. California, I would say, uh, excuse me, uh, Washington, Oregon, all those states have uh, almost identical statutory uh, on the state level. So if they're following basically the same laws, on the state level, then I'm not sure how they feel like they're being commandeered. And I agree with Matthew that that is, and with uh, Justice uh, uh, Jackson Brown, that, you know, it's an invented uh, legal mechanism by which they are looking for an entry point. And um, I would say this too, um, when we talk about everything being on the table, everything is on the table. It's not just about ICWA. I mean, our children they've been after since they landed on our shores. This is a true statement. But really what this is about, and if this thing is overturned or dissolved in any way, everything then is on the table from housing, health care, education, mm -hmm. infrastructure, all those federal carve-outs, up to and including the gaming compacts, up to and including the trust lands are all on the table because then they can say, well, all of that is race-based and unconstitutional. And so, therefore, when we talk about defunding things, that's – and I really want people to understand this – when we talk about defunding, that is the ultimate defunding, because all of that will be reverted back to the states. And if the tribes think for one second the states are going to be generous in allocating those resources back to the tribes, they are mistaken. And so I think at this point, everybody really needs to put their petty and turnicine squabbles aside and really join together in the next eight months to really um, get their point across in terms of what this means for America's Indian tribes. Suzette, if you could respond also to, to Norman's question, he was listening in Gallup, and his question, you know, what happens if, and apparently, you know, 
you're not you you're you're very concerned that there could be a complete overturn of ICWA. And and Norman asks, you know, what happens to us in Native America if that is dissolved? And you mentioned these these existential threats to sovereignty and some of these other long standing. Um, rights and, and laws that as native people that we live by and these treaties that we're protected by. And um, is all of that at risk? All of it's at risk. I mean, here, here we're talking, essentially what we're talking about is federal preeminence. That has been a principle that has been around since the founding of the Republic. And so the whole, the whole idea that the federal government, quote unquote, cannot tell the states what to do is cockamamie. And, and I agree with Matthew that it, 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 it beggars belief that these justices who went to some of the finest legal institutions in the country and should be by now well-versed on what it takes to deal with the Indian tribes, given the fact that we are embedded in the Constitution, I think that really does show a bit of cynical um, disingenuousness on their part, because I absolutely know. I've, I, but I've been in Supreme Court hearings where they – they literally have to be uh, spoon-fed what the allotment process was. I mean, they don't tend to spend a whole lot of time, it seems to me, on federal Indian law when there's especially a case of this magnitude that's coming down the pipeline. I mean, this is a Class 5 hurricane. Veronica okay. was really the first shot across the bow, but this is a big deal. This encompasses everything in addition to our children. Suzette, let, let's also talk a, a little bit about uh... – the the drama here in in, in these families uh, that are, that are backed by the these very very conservative interests some of the these think tanks and some of these high profile right wing organizations and, and and a lot of what they're selling here is this image right these these heart wrenching scenes in which potential adoptees are taken from these non native foster parents who they've bonded with who who they have affinity for and, and it looks it looks really moving to somebody who's not familiar with these issues and what should somebody really understand uh, about seeing scenes like that about what's really going on at the heart of this issue with these families and with these native children that have been adopted out well first I want to say this uh, is my understanding uh that really what this case turns on on a practical level is a six-year-old, I think the sister of a, of a young boy that, that already has been adopted by the Brackeens. My understanding is they also want to adopt his sister. Um, and my understanding is also that she has never even met these people. So they're looking essentially for a salt and pepper shaker set. Uh, they, they're looking for a match, matching set. And so that's one thing that I don't think a lot of people know, that the actual children behind this thing, they're, they're, there's, there's a couple of nuanced um, you know, points about that that need to be made. The, the, the child that they're arguing over right now has never, as far as I'm, I know, has never met or even lived with them. And so there, that's the first thing. I think the second thing is, in terms of what people need to know, is that when we talk about Indian children, as Matthew pointed out in his remarks, uh, this is something, I mean, the, the Indian Child Welfare Act, empirically speaking, all the empirical data over the last, not just 45 years, ICWA took 20 years to pass in the first place. So it is the most analyzed, the most dataized uh like congressional act in the history of the republic there is more data on indian child welfare than any other act in u.s history that is a true statement and it was passed for a reason it was passed exactly for the same missionary-minded 
people who really don't take into account the fact that tribes literally were torn asunder from having their children taken for the, mm-hmm. you know, for the hundred years prior to the passage of the Indian Child Welfare Act. And to say that uh, a non-Indian couple is being discriminated against, I find laughable when you consider the fact that children, Indian children are not commodity; they're not commodities to be traded okay. on okay. the market. Okay, so then I'm sorry, I want you want to take a short break because we do have another caller on the line. We have Donna in Wasilla, Alaska. Donna, hello, and thanks for calling us today. Good morning. I uh, have to really think about this one. It's complicated, but it can become simple because it just all boils down to um, who can be the best advocate for these children. And I adopted my grandchildren through, and if it wouldn't have been for ICWA, I would not have gotten him. So I strongly support ICWA because of our sovereignty rights and uh, need to be respected. But I also realize that these children that have bonded with uh, these parents, there needs to be remediation of some kind of some kind of legal action taken where the tribes can still have access to them if they do do away with it. Because uh, I saw my grandchildren on weekends and I had a big, huge court battle. And through that weekend uh, bonding, I was able to keep uh, in touch with them to realize what was happening to them outside of when they were outside my home. And okay. so and that's Donna, really I'm sorry. important. Excuse me, really quick, Donna. So were your, your grandchildren, were they adopted uh, by a non-Native family then, or were they still with a Native family? I'm just curious. Uh, no, they they were uh, they were with uh, the white mother, uh, who is their biological mother, who is uh, who had addiction problems, and that's why I was uh, wanting my grandchildren. And okay. I'm native. And if it wouldn't have been for ICWA, I would not have gotten them because a lady came to my house and I had to show her the legal. I had to become a, my own lawyer. I had to look up the uh, statutes of neglect to prove that there was neglect. And so, you know, sometimes we have to really go overboard to keep those kids, but it's all worth it. Well, Donna, thank you for, for calling in there and sharing some of your family history. And uh, well, Suzette, you know, we hear stories uh, similar to Donna's so often with regard to these struggles to, to keep uh, Native families with, within their homes or within their, their, their communities and, and whatnot. And it's really at stake here to going forward. And um, it's just uh, interesting to think about and, and, and certainly concerning. And um, so if this doesn't go well, like you, like you suspect it might not go well. And, um, at, at what point is this all just going to, everything just going to come completely just spun in its head. And we're just going to look at a, a radically different type of native America. If this, if this really goes through, like you're thinking it's going to be overturned. Well, I, I pray that it won't. First of all, let me just say that. I mean, I pray that it won't, but I, I think the headwinds are against us in terms of the majority on this court. I mean, if they're willing to overturn Roe, then I think that really, like, all bets are off at this point. And the fact that, you know, Justice Thomas was one of the first ones out of the box to start talking yesterday, given his silence over the last, I don't know, 30 years that he's been on the court, I think that really is telling. And he is one, 
he is frankly the one that's leading or one of the ones that's leading the charge on this because if you look at the dissent that, or the concurrence excuse me that he wrote on the Veronica case I mean it was it was pretty clear that he he had no use for the tribes at that point and it was clear to me from the transcript that that he he's still beating the same drum that he was beating 10 years ago as far as the tribes are concerned and and he's even said openly uh that he does you know that you know the framers quote unquote did not intend to be you know doing actual business he called it with the tribes he thought they were he, you know his contention was you know they just thought the u.s would be doing you know trading beads and furs he used those words beads and furs with the indians he didn't they didn't they weren't expecting to actually have to deal with the tribes as businessmen. Mm. And so that tells you kind of what his mindset is. But I, I also want to address one other thing since we're on this subject. You know, we talk about, you know, the Cato Institute, the American Enterprise Institute, and all these other gold letter institute and all the others that have ganged up on Indian country over the last 10 years. It is not about the kids. I mean, let's just right. really right. get to the point here. It is about tribal sovereignty. They want... You know, it's the commercial gaming industry. It is the uh, natural resource people. They're looking for mining. They're looking for gaming. They're looking. They're looking at all the stuff that that they feel that we have an important that, that that we have an advantage, you know, over the other rest of the United right. States. Right. And they, they see this don't. as potentially that weak link in the chain. Yeah, absolutely, Suzette. We're gonna have to take a break. We'll be right back. This Native American Heritage Month, remember, one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a health care professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash hbpcontrol. This support provided in partnership with HHS slash OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreements CPIMP 2112-27 and CPIMP 2112-28. Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking with experts on ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act. It's being challenged again at the Supreme Court level, and some believe that an unfavorable decision could have ramifications for tribal sovereignty. What do you think? Do you have questions? There's still time to join us. We're at 1-800-996-2848. Let's go to the phones right now. Again, in Anchorage, Alaska, we have Lynette listening on KNBA. Lynette, hello. Good morning, Sean. Thank you for taking my call. And unfortunately, I had the experience of dealing with with uh, the OCS, the Office of Children's Services, here in the state of Alaska concerning three of my grandchildren. Yes, my daughter was not doing good. Um, she was abusing both alcohol and medication. At the Providence Hospital when she uh, gave birth. The nurses at Providence uh, pushed the opioids on the mothers. She got addicted. Well, anyhow, um, my grandkids were not being watched like they should have been and taken care of. And then ICWA got involved. And, okay. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, OCS got involved. And uh, and so the the um, what happened was that I was trying to get them. And my my daughter claimed that I abused my grandson. I had spanked him, and okay, we had All to right. hire a lawyer. Yes. Okay. All right, Lynette. Um. Yeah. So, if you could just quickly summarize, um, what is your 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 main question or or comment for our show today with regard to 
these recent oral arguments and ICWA? A lot of people don't know. Okay, I had the lawyer and I was proved innocent. And what a lot of people don't know about the state of Alaska is that the state workers, the caseworkers for OCS, they get over $3,000 for each child that is placed in the foster, I mean, I'm sorry, that is uh, adopted. And that's what happened to my grandkids. They got adopted out. Okay, so the and a financial incentive, obviously, $3,000 to do that. So, uh, Lynette, thanks for calling in and sharing. And, and unfortunately, just a, a really, really unfortunate incident there up in, in Anchorage. So uh, let's go to our third guest now. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Dr. Sarah Kostelik. She's the executive director of the National Indian Child Welfare Association. She's a Lutic. Sarah, welcome back to Native America Calling. Uh, you're a frequent guest on NAC as well. And, and thank you for sharing some time with us today. Thanks, Sean. I'm so happy to be here. Absolutely. And you were uh, in D.C. yesterday. You were at a rally outside uh, while the oral arguments were taking place. What was the mood there? Yeah, that's right. So uh, my organization, the National Indian Child Welfare Association, and our partners, the Native American Rights Fund, the National Congress of American Indians, and the Association on American Indian Affairs, um, have been working together as the Protect ICWA campaign Uh, since 2017. And so um, as we prepared for oral arguments, uh, we were initially planning to join the crowd to try to get a seat to go inside and listen to the oral arguments. But, you know, at NICWA, we started getting these phone calls and emails and, you know, about a month away from oral arguments, more and more. And and really what we were hearing from Indian country is, you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to gather? How are we going to respond? What should we be doing Uh, when oral arguments are happening, because so many people can't travel from their community, can't come here to Washington, D.C., and even if they could, there are a limited number of seats inside the courthouse. So people were really asking us, what should we be doing? What can we be part of? And so we really felt like it was important to create space, both physically and spiritually, uh, for our communities to gather, to be present, to stand in solidarity while the oral arguments were happening. So Yesterday, we gathered, we had about 300 people in front of the courthouse. Uh, Folks were making signs. We had a bunch of signs printed, Uh, but we just, we had a prayer gathering. We had a pipe ceremony. Uh, Paul Day, who's the chief judge from Leech Lake, um, opened us with a blessing and a pipe ceremony. And then for about an hour and a half, we had people who were offering prayers, offering songs. Um, Our local drum group here, the Uptown Singers were there and um, offered some, some songs. So it was just a way for people to come together, both physically in D.C. um, and people standing in solidarity with us across the country in tribal communities, in urban communities. And I would say even, um, you know, like-minded organizations, allies allies of ours in Australia and Canada, you know, people were just telling us, we're standing with you, we're standing in prayer, um, we're holding space. And uh, Sarah, all of the people you work with uh, there at the community level, uh, I'm thinking of people that work in social services and, and family advocates, and, and, and just in the midst of all this turmoil, how are they handling their, their daily caseloads with regard to any of these issues that, that are in any way connected to ICWA? Yeah, well, I think there's two things happening, right? There's the first um, urgent kind of immediate demand uh, serving families Uh, some of whom are in crisis, some of whom need uh, supports and services wrapped around them to help 
them care for their children safely at home. Uh, but there's kind of just meeting that immediate need, which we know in Indian country is so pressing. We know so many of our tribal workers have very high case loads, have uh, really demanding jobs, and oftentimes very small tribal child welfare programs. Uh, these can be really isolating experiences doing this kind of work, uh, being on call around the clock. So we know the work is demanding and people are working really hard at it. Um, and then you have this larger picture of the challenges to ICWA and the uncertainty about the future of it. So, you know, I think what I would say about this is I really agree with our prior speakers, with Matthew and Suzette, that there's definitely a larger political agenda at play here. There's no question about that. There are potentially uh, big consequences depending on how the court uh, fines on these different um, claims that are before them. So I think we have to be clear-eyed about the threats, but we're also waiting for a decision now. And as Matthew said, that decision is going to be a long time coming. So what I really uh -huh. appreciate about the folks that I get to work with in Indian country is that there's a lot of conversation about um, what are we doing now to strengthen implementation of ICWA? What are we doing to get more state ICWA laws passed? There's lots of momentum around that now. How are we strengthening our own tribal programs? Because the best defense to protecting ICWA is a good offense. Let's keep our kids out of the state system. Let's keep more kids at home in tribal care. So I think that kind of really constructive, focused um, conversation, like what are the things we're going to put our energy into now, uh, how can we advocate while we wait? I think those kinds of things are um, really helpful to us. And uh, that's what I hear people talking about. Well, sir, I'm really glad you mentioned that in terms of, of, of building up uh, ICWA capacity. And I thought it was interesting yesterday because one of the Brackeen lawyers argued that less than 2,000 native foster homes exist. And I don't know if that statistic is correct or not, but that's the statistic he used. And he said it creates this huge need for non-native foster homes to fill that gap. And what's your thought on that? I mean, if, um, if we had more native foster homes, um, would that perhaps curtail some of these assaults like Brackeen versus Holland? Here's what I can tell you. I think the problem starts way further upstream than that. So looking at just the number of foster homes is um, really um, not starting in the right place. So what I would say is we need to be much more focused on prevention. We need to uh, be reaching out to families long before they're in crisis. We shouldn't be waiting for bruises or abandonment. We should be noticing when families are struggling. This is part of our job as relatives, right, as good neighbors, is to, um, to pay attention to what's going on around us and when people uh, need help to reach out and say, is there something I can do? Um, what, what's going on? Do you need help, uh, you know, to try to connect people to services and support long before there's ever any serious intervention, long before a child welfare agency comes along? We know parenting is hard. Um, you know, every parent struggles at some point in time. That's no surprise. So we should be uh, proactively thinking about how do we support families and kids uh, and how do we keep kids out of the formal system? So if we're doing more prevention work, if more kids get to stay safely at home, which we know is so much better for them, uh, then guess what? We need far fewer foster families. So I would say the problem is we need much more on the front end, much more attention, many more resources, much more focus on prevention, and that reduces the need for foster care overall. Okay.
And Sarah, really what we're looking at here is this whole continuum of possibilities that we've talked about today, from, from a partial judgment on ICWA to just a full-on, you know, striking it down, complete attack on sovereignty. Where are you at in terms of um, what, what's, what's going to happen? What's, what's your biggest concern, your biggest fear right now in terms of where this goes? Uh, well, I'm not a person who's given to forecasting uh, what's likely to, to happen. Uh, I agree that this is a really complicated case, that there are multiple claims. Uh, you know, one thing I think about is Suzette was mentioning the Fifth Circuit's uh, en banc decision. That was a 325-page decision made up of eight individual decisions. There's a lot of nuance there. You see, um, you know, judges lining up on different sides of different issues, signing on to dissents in one case and a concurrence in another case. And so, you know, I'm anticipating that um, that there's going to be, uh, you know, a, a lengthy decision, a complex decision. It's likely going to be something that. Um, you know, lawyers are going to need to read multiple times. We're going to need to try to think about what are the implications of all these things? What does it mean for child welfare practice on the ground? Um, and so, uh, so I'm not trying to predict anything either way, but I think, um, you know, it's helpful for us to be, again, clear-eyed about what the challenge is, but also to put our energy and attention to the things that we can do something about. Also, uh, you know, one of these issues here is this whole idea of, um, you know, and we talk so much on this show now about identity and, and what makes a person native and this whole idea and this approach that um, there, some of these justices are looking at it in, in terms of a, a racial issue as opposed to it being uh, a case of, of Native American people being political groups and um, what does that mean just for the future in terms of how we are, are, are addressed and how, how the, the government ultimately um, interprets who we are as Native people? And, and Matthew touched on this a little bit earlier as well, but what's your thought on that, Sarah? I mean, you know, one of the, this is um, related to that question, but what I would say is, you know, I was talking to a reporter this morning who was asking me about the history of assimilation in our country, assimilationist policies, and, and what that means for identity, and what about the well-being of children, and um, how does uh, Native ethnicity, how does being a Native citizen, a tribal citizen, uh, how does that impact child well-being and what kids need? Um, and, you know, so we had a really good conversation about the fact that um, that when we're thinking about what's in the best interest of children and what will support their well-being, what will support their health and well-being, not just at a moment in time when a child's custody case is being heard or a placement decision is being made, but over the course of their lives, if we think of them, you know, as uh, the, over the life course, their development, growing into adulthood and being parents themselves, like, what is uh, what does a child know about their identity and what supports their healthy development and well-being? You know, so much of what we know is that this is about connection to extended family, connection to community. It's about our cultures as powerful protective factors in our lives. Those are the things that support us um, as we get older, as we experience life's challenges, right? Those are the things that help to uh, support us in knowing how to, to find our balance, knowing how to handle adversity, um, you know, when things don't go our way, uh, knowing how to, to soothe ourselves, okay. um, you know, being able, yeah, absolutely, I think those absolutely. are important factors. 
Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing, Sarah. And let's go back to Matthew. And and Matthew, I want to talk again about about yesterday's uh, arguments. And I, I thought one of the most poignant moments, and it happened actually pretty early on uh, in the proceeding, was when uh, Justice Gorsuch uh, responded to one of the Brackeen attorneys. He said, "You've sued federal officials, and, and and no federal officials can tell a state court what to do." I think that might be the end of it. And to me, I mean, it, it sounded like a KO punch to me right there, Matthew. I mean, what was your thought on that in, in terms of where that goes? Yeah, the, the case has been a sham from the beginning. I mean, all the adoptions in this case are done. The Texas is suing uh, federal officials. Uh, it's more like they're, you know, a- appealing to a base, not, not to actual judges. Um, you know, this is just a, a rank political move. You know, really what Texas has a problem with is its own court system applying and implementing ICWA. And Texas can't go ahead and just sue, to, sue its own judges. So um, it's just trying to get into court. It's just trying to, you know, um, get their solicitor general in front of the Supreme Court one more time to make a political plea to the court. And when you have a highly politicized court, so you, a court like this one, you, you might actually – get a big win out of it. What really bothered, now as I'm thinking and listening to this uh, call today, what really bothers me is what is not discussed at all in the Supreme Court is the fact that all four children at issue, well, really three children, and then the fourth child, there's a case pending in the Texas state courts. Um, All the four children uh, from these three uh, foster families are Native children who had biological relatives who wanted to, who were loving, who were safe and competent families who wanted to take those children, um, and they were attacked. They were brutally attacked in, in the most bigoted way possible in these usually closed child welfare proceedings that we're not supposed to talk about at the Supreme Court. Um, this is what this, this, these are the equal cases that get to the appellate courts. These are the ugly contested adoptions, and um, we don't get to talk about how awful it is when non-Indian families. Uh, trying to adopt Indian kids brutally go after Native people who are relatives of the children that they're trying to take away from their homes. And that's what really, really bothers me about, you know, just the complete lack of knowledge about what's going on really on the ground. Folks, we will have to wrap up our show now, but we'll be keeping up with whatever happens at the Supreme Court with this case and ICWA. I want to thank our guests today, Dr. Sarah Kostelik, Matthew Fletcher, and Suzette Brewer for a very enlightening conversation. Join us tomorrow for a discussion on Native children's books. Until then, I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening. Yadze, enroll in health care coverage through CMS today and keep your health protected all year long. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov or call one 800 318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Ahyaha. Local tribal museums are the experts of indigenous histories, cultures, and values with the tools to educate the public. On the first National Tribal Museums Day, on December 3rd, participating museums will offer no-cost admission, special exhibits, and live cultural demonstrations. Learn more at indian-affairs.org slash tribal museums day. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this program.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Quantic Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.